I think these comments from Chuck Schumer are important because I want every Republican out there to realize that when the Democrats are winning, they are rubbing it in our face. And some Democrat senators, some Republican senators are now coming up and they are stunned. How dare he do this? You think we're still living in the same country, don't you? Senators from South Dakota. Senator Portman. You think we're still living in the 1980s where the Democrats actually want what's best for America? The Democrats want to destroy the country. We know this. This is not new stuff. It's not profound thinking. They want to see America completely obliterated, the Constitution shredded and remade in their own San Francisco, Brooklyn, Malibu, Manhattan image. Where there is no cultural identity, where you live in sexual anarchy, where private property is a thing of the past, and the ruling class controls everything. We know this. And Schumer is willing to get there. Schumer is willing to get it done. Republicans are not. Republicans are trying to protect a country that no longer exists. All right. Uh, that was, of course, our friend Charlie Kirk uh, laying out some theories about sexual anarchy and how uh, rich people in, in Manhattan and Malibu want to abolish private property. Uh, I, I've got to say, I probably shouldn't say this because because uh, you know I, I want people to be excited to tune in for it when it finally comes out in a couple weeks. But he wasn't nearly this entertaining <laughs> when, uh, when he talked to me. There was there was nothing like this. There was not a word about sexual anarchy. Uh, you know, I, I didn't hear anything. You know, he he did not accuse me of wanting to uh, wanting me and my my Brooklyn and the rest of those locations he listed off, buddies. Um, <laughs> to uh, uh, to wanting to destroy the country utterly, uh, none of that stuff, uh, which is which is actually almost uh, almost disappointing. Um, so, Jake, do you, do you have any thoughts about this? What does uh, what does sexual anarchy mean, and how how, how does Charlie think that uh, we're planning to impose it on him? I mean, I'm I'm almost afraid to weigh in, but I I would just say you know it's it's funny because I live in Brooklyn. So his comments about uh, Brooklyn abolishing uh, private property and, and living in a state of sexual anarchy are intriguing to me. Uh, I haven't seen any signs recently, but maybe I just don't I don't know where to look. You know, I, my my rent check every month is going to someone and maybe maybe it's some kind of worker cooperative. I'm, I'm not sure. Or going to the state. Uh, I, I thought it was owned by an individual, but maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken. Yeah, all of these places definitely still seem to have, you know, landlords. Uh, private, private property is doing pretty good <laughs> here in here in Brooklyn, I would say. Yeah, he actually he he also even listed off Manhattan, and private property is doing real good there. Um, yeah, like it, like and it and it is interesting actually just to watch him uh, be pulled in a couple of different directions at once there. Because of course uh, now you know he has he has done this thing where he's rebranded himself as a as a populist and I agree with you, Darius. Uh, he says I don't know what sexual anarchy is, but it sounds fun. Uh, so uh, he's rebranded himself as a populist, which of course is what the debate I did with him was uh, was all about. You know, kind of trying to um, you know poke holes in that. You know, if you're such a populist, why don't you want to raise the minimum wage? Uh, why don't why don't you want to give everybody health care? Why don't you want to make it easier for ordinary people to organize unions? Uh, 
but he also wants to red bait. So it's like at the same time, he's saying like in that like minute and change clip we watched, uh, he's saying both. Uh, yes. Uh, so Antonio says uh, uh, Malibu was notorious for lack of private property. Uh, but like this, this is the contradiction, right? Because at the same time, he says within like 75 seconds or however long that clip was, he says that under the dystopia that's going to be ushered in once, you know, not even the left, you know, Democrats uh, destroy the country utterly. Um, once this utter destruction of the country happens, he said the ruling class is going to control everything. And he listed off a bunch of, you know, zip codes that are, you know, most of those places he was mentioning are not cheap to live in. Um and so that's Charlie the populist. The uh, the ruling class is going to run everything. We hate the ruling class. But at the same time, Charlie the red baiter has got to, like when he's listed off all the terrible things they're going to do, uh, like uh, make us live in uh, sexual anarchy, said that private property is going to be a thing of the past. And I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, I'm not a sociologist. Um, you know, maybe I'm very wrong about this, but... Um, I really was under the strong impression that rich people like having stuff. Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's odd, you know, because it seemed like uh, some of this populist turn was a, a turn away from more of like the Christian moral panic, right? Like toward the Trumpian, you know, of sex, who is more sexual anarchy than, than Donald Trump, right? So it's, <laughs> it's, it's strange to see those two trying to vie for control within the same... Uh, the same soundbite, right? There's all these ideas kind of pinballing off of each other that are hard to make sense of, but I guess they make sense to his audience. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it's, uh, I mean, yeah, which which is also like a whole bundle of strangeness in itself, like how, how these guys relate to, um, you know, to Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, we're very concerned about traditional morality, but you know, also whatever, you know, Donald's will be Donald's. Uh, so uh, I'm not at all, you know, not at all sure about that. Uh, but it, it is, uh, it is a very strange clip. Like also, okay, the Democrats, remember, he's not talking about like, I don't know, socialists or communists or, uh Antifa, you know, whatever, whatever the sort of right-wing bogeyman of the week is. He's talking about Democrats. Like, like he he literally mentioned Chuck Schumer at the beginning of the bit. Chuck Schumer wants to destroy all private property. Chuck Schumer wants private property to be a thing of the past. Like, just to review, for anybody who didn't watch this segment a couple of weeks ago, uh, this is the same Chuck Schumer. Uh, who who thinks that, well, look, I mean, if the parliament, Senate parliamentarian says that we can't raise the minimum wage uh, to, um, you know, to $15 an hour, you know, within the reconciliation process, then what are we going to do? I mean, you know, a, a, a staffer who we could fire at any time, uh, like, like is, and who has literally no power uh, under the relevant Senate rules, uh, it is true, by the way. I should I should do this correction for that segment. Uh, it was pointed out to me since then. The Burr rules saying that um, things within you know budget reconciliation have to have significant budgetary effects ha is written into law at this point. But 
that only applies if the Senate chooses to have a filibuster rule, which they don't need to. Uh, and also, they get to decide what that means, the significant budgetary effects. Um, you, like, literally, the parliamentarian has no power, but they're pretending to be powerless in the face of this staffer that could be fired or overruled uh, and to not get a $15 minimum wage. And these are the people, um, the, the people who just, uh, you know, who, who just pushed through the uh, the extra billion dollars of funding for, for Israel for the Iron Dome, uh, you know, uh, because like the, the three billion that, you know, we're already giving them for various other military needs isn't good enough, right? These are the people who are going to, um, launch uh, this revolution uh, to make private property a thing of the past. And I'll, I mean, all I could say, man, you know, it's like anybody remembers the X-Files, you know, the, the poster on Mulder's office. I want to believe, but I am just not confident that Chuck Schumer and the residents of Malibu and Manhattan are going to get the job done. <laughs> Yeah, we'll get you there. We'll we'll get you there. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so later on in the show, we are going to have uh, Matt Leck and David Griska, the co-hosts uh, of one of our favorite um, uh, fraternal podcasts, uh, Left Reckoned, uh, on to talk about cryptocurrency. I'm pretty sure they'll tell us about you know their their all the you know all the crypto they're holding and their investment tips and you know why they think it's the future of money. Uh, and uh, in the uh, philosophy segment with Jen, uh, we're going to go to back to Charlie Kirk uh, to uh, to talk about some of the stuff that he said about uh, social contract theory in uh, in that debate. And then in the post game, uh, we're going to be joined by Jason Miles uh, from uh, This Is Revolution uh, to, and um, I'm very excited about this because. I asked Jason late last week if he'd ever heard of Rod Dreher, and he said no. So um, we are going to introduce him to some of Rod's thoughts, uh, which, which should be fun. But uh, all good things in time. Before we uh, before we get to that, a uh, couple other things that I want to get to. Uh, so we mentioned the minimum wage earlier. Uh, and I just saw an interesting exchange about this happen uh, last Friday on, on Twitter, uh, starting with former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, who tweeted this. Uh, Robert Reich says, this is not complicated. If you can't afford to pay your employees a living wage, you do not have a viable business model. All right, pretty solid. Uh, I should say that um, Robert Reich was not nearly this cool when he was Labor Secretary in the Clinton administration. This is a more recent development over the course of his life. But, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, current Robert Reich tweeting good stuff. Uh, then he got a response uh, from um, the Austrian economist and uh, main, you know, convener of the uh, Soho Forum debate series, somebody I've debated myself, uh, this uh, libertarian Gene Epstein. And Gene replies to Robert Reich and says, consequences of this dictum, unemployment for millions who need work experience to enhance their job skills and earn that living wage, shutdowns of thousands of businesses that serve the needs of folks who don't yet earn the living wage. And I wanted to make a few points about this. 
Um, because I, I think there's a lot of wrongness packed into this this tweet. Like there are a lot of there are a lot of individual different things that are wrong with it. I just want to would take a minute to talk about all of them uh, because this is all of the misguided stuff that you're going to hear if you try to talk to a conservative or libertarian about the minimum wage. Not all of it, but most of it is packed into this tweet. So uh, I guess to start at the end, he says, he talks about those who do not yet uh, make a living wage are going to get valuable work experience from it. And this is oftentimes the picture of how minimum wage jobs work that emerges from a lot of these discussions is uh, you'll, you'll see people, you know, say, well, if they want to get better jobs, they should go to college, uh, which, you know, 99.999% of people who've uttered that sentence are also against making college free uh, or, or any kind of student debt relief. Uh, but like, just factually, this is not who's earning the minimum wage, right? We have a little, you know, neat little infographic for this. Uh, so it says who benefits us uh, for the Economic Policy Institute, who benefits from a higher minimum wage. In other words, who's earning less than, you know, than what it would be raised to. Um, what people think, teenager, works part-time, lives with parents, earning extra spending, spending money. And this is the kind of image that emerges from Gene's tweet. So that people gaining valuable work experience. So later on, they'll get a living wage. The reality, the other side of the infographic, average age, 36 years old. Um, 89% are not teens, right? So only 11% of people um, at uh, minimum wage, uh, minimum wage jobs, or at least, you know, less than, you know, than the uh, $15 uh, are teenagers, uh, 37% are 40 or older, 56% are women, 28% have children, 57% work full time. Uh, on average, the workers that we're talking about earn more than half of their family's total income. So this is worth emphasizing because the positive effects in the lives of tens of millions of people of getting that higher minimum wage are always just completely minimized in, uh, in, in these arguments. Like, oh, nothing really much is at stake on that end of the ledger, you know, but the negative consequences are really bad. Uh, you're actually going to be hurting the people that you intend to help, uh, which every single person who's ever said that has, you know, said it as if this is the first time that the listener had ever heard it said. Uh, you know, you're hurting the very people that you intend to help uh, because millions of people will be put out of work. So uh, a few points about this. First of all, uh, the jump from businesses that can't afford, you know, $15 an hour or whatever, uh, you know, whatever minimum wage or higher wage we're talking about, will be put out, you know, will have to have to shut their doors. That, uh, And there are, of course, lots that say that, but they could afford that. But, you know, there are, there are also others that, you know, genuinely, right, like, you know, the problem profit margin is razor thin and, you know, and, and, and they really, you know, would not be able to do that. Uh, but there's this huge leap from the premise that there are at least some businesses that would not be able to compete in, you know, given, uh, given this higher minimum wage, their business model rests on paying people poverty wages uh, that would be put out of business. And the conclusion 
that therefore there are going to be these catastrophic employment effects for billions of people. And that just does not follow. Um, it doesn't follow for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which is that just because some businesses um, are not able to sustain themselves, that doesn't mean that every single person who works for such a business is just not going to have a job. Uh, you know, that's like if you're assuming a smaller business goes out of business and is replaced by nothing, uh, that might be the case. Uh, but if you're assuming, you know, that uh, that they'll, you know, that their market share will be eaten up, you know, by by companies that can't afford that, then that not necessarily so. Now, you might say what you're really concerned with the small business owners. I think in the Charlie Kirk debate, it became very clear that when he talks about, you know, populism, ordinary people going against the elites, the non-elites he's thinking of are small business owners, not workers. But, you know, if you, if who you really care, you know, that was my take anyway, people can judge for themselves. Uh, but uh, if you really care about um, small businesses so much, right, that, uh, that, that's a higher priority to you, right? That small businesses stay in business, you know, the, the smallest ones, the ones least able, you know, to, uh, to make a profit, stay in business. If that's a higher priority for you than the welfare of workers, then okay, fine. But say that, right? Don't, don't pretend that the issue is about, um, is about workers that you're really, you're concerned with the workers when really you're, you know, your, your concern is with the small businesses, just, be real about what we're talking about here, um, and uh, and then we can have a discussion about that. Uh, another point about this: if we've separated out those questions, this claim that millions of people are going to be out of work is um, extremely empirically sketchy. Uh, so uh, there is, if you want to read a bunch about the research about this all at once, uh, there is this, um, this is put out by the Center for Economic Policy Research, uh, SEPR, I guess. Uh, and uh, it's a paper from 2013 called Why Does the Minimum Wage Have No Discernible Effect on Employment? Uh, and of course, that's eight years ago, but also, you know, it's talking about decades of research that happened up to that point. And I think since then, it's largely the same picture that, you know, there are individual studies that you can cherry pick, you know, that, that, that show more unemployment as a result of certain minimum wage increases uh, that that happens. Uh, it, it's, you know, like, although sometimes like even with the same like Seattle, right, the city of Seattle, there are multiple conflicted studies about what happened there, um, you know, for different universities. But a phrase that you're almost never going to hear from people who are pushing this narrative that millions of people are going to go out of work is meta-study. In other words, that they never talk about the meta-studies where you look, okay, look, any particular study with a really small sample size might seem to prove all sorts of things because you could have all kinds of like weird little correlations that show up in individual studies. This is how people end up believing that uh, plants can think and coffee cures cancer you know, because there'll be some tiny study. It's like, well, there seems to be this correlation we can't explain. And then irresponsible science journals play it up and, uh, and people end up thinking that on the other end. But what you really want to look at are meta-studies where you aggregate information from, from a ton of different studies and see what on average it seems to show. 
Uh, uh, by and large, you know, meta studies since, you know, there was this decades ago, there was this classic study, uh, Card and Kruger, who looked at uh, neighboring counties on the Pennsylvania, New Jersey state line. One of them had raised the minimum wage, the other one hadn't. And, you know, they and seemed to show that there was not, in fact, any noticeable effect on like restaurant employment, which was something that was really predicted there. And in general, these decades of, of studies really cast a lot of doubt when you look at the meta studies. I mean, there are a few if that it's super obvious that people have just cherry picked, like, here are the seven that I like, you know, because they show what I want. But generally, normal meta studies do not particularly support this claim. Um, and sometimes you'll find people, you know, the Congressional Budget Office uh, said that it was possible that, you know, $15, you know, well, they said it would be anywhere from like zero uh, to, you know, 3 billion people uh, would, uh, you know, would lose their jobs. Um, you know, they said most likely maybe around 1.3. I think if you look at those decades of meta studies, it's not clear that the Congressional Budget Office is right. But here's the most important point from my perspective. Let's say for the sake of argument, they're right. Let's say, you know, 1.3 million people, you know, would not have the current jobs that they have if we raise the minimum wage. Hell, let's say, let's double it, right? Let's say, you know, like 1.3 was their most likely number. Let's say 2.6 million people, you know, wouldn't have their current jobs uh, if uh, if the minimum wage were raised. And, and we're assuming here that the private sector would pick it up. Okay, well, one... What you have to balance that against are huge improvements in the lives of tens of millions of people who are earning less than $15 an hour right now. Um, and, you know, it, it seems like that alone, you know, you, there's a reasonable, like, I think that alone is fatal to the idea that it's just straightforwardly, unambiguously true that you're hurting the people that you want to help. But also, hey, all right, let's say 2.6 million people. You don't think that there's enough to do to have public works programs to give 2.6 million people jobs, like transitioning to a green infrastructure, you know, uh, building, you know, like, you know, highways, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, opening up a bunch of new post offices uh, would be nice. Uh, and, you know, and instituted postal banking. Like I, I've got like anybody who wants to hear my list. It's, it's not a short list. And, to, like employing 2.6 million people doing that is nothing. And people who support a higher minimum wage do tend to also support, uh, you know, an increased public sector. So none of this makes any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it seems like at the end of the day, it's all about having a, a weak workforce with, a, with as few options as, as possible, right? Um, because to, to be forced to take uh, shit jobs and, uh, you know, even uh, you see even the smallest effects of people questioning whether they really want to go back to work is already, uh, you know, resulting in increased strike activity, hashtag striketober this month, right? So you can, you can, you can see the effects uh, that honestly, uh, any, any increase in strength in the workforce already, you know, uh, leads to some tangible results. So I guess I, I get why they're so scared, you know, to have workers, uh, you know, their, their lives improve at all and have better options. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny, too, because, you know, whenever the uh, labor market changes such that um, workers actually have a little bit of bargaining power, you know, 
honorable exceptions, but for the most part, you know, the same crowd that uh, that normally says, you know, we really want, uh, you know, it's it's very important uh, that you just let the free market do its thing and. Uh, and look, I mean, that's that's sad for you if if you know nobody was offering you a job at a, you know the rate of compensation that you want, but you know nobody owes that to you, et cetera, et cetera. Suddenly, it's this is a big crisis. Nobody wants to work. Uh, you know, the, uh, you know, the, we really need to put the squeeze on these people. So they'll start working again. So um, yeah, uh, okay. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Matt and David in a minute, but I, I know you did have one other thing you want to throw in here. Yeah, um, just, uh, you know, in, in my arguments uh, with conservatives uh, about this issue, I think I think the sticking point, right, is like, yes, there is a, a theoretical wage that would be way too high, right? Like we can't sure. we can't pay workers as much as we might want to. Uh, well, maybe from from like Amazon workers deserve this, but in general, if we made everyone everywhere pay workers a thousand dollars an hour, that would actually cause some of the effects that they're erroneously claiming would happen, right? So, you know, if we're discussing this with conservatives, we it, I feel like it makes sense to to kind of cop to that, right? But then we kind of have to go into the methodology of how to find that number, right? So it could get pretty technical pretty fast. So I'm wondering, like, what advice you would have for people talking about the minimum wage? Like, how do we how do we come upon that number? Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest thing to me is that, sure, like, do I know exactly where, you know, the economic effects would be so disastrous, you know, that that, that even I, right, you know, wouldn't, like, run the kind of argument we just did, you know, that, like, no, not exactly, right? I mean, I, I think that there's a range of stuff that would probably be totally fine, uh, you know, like above $15 an hour that I, I, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think you can remotely claim this this for. I'm sure there's a range of wages that, you know, would start to produce worse effects and the trade-offs would, would start getting trickier. And then, yeah, right, once you're up to $1,000 an hour, right, that's that sure, you know, but, you know, almost everybody would have to, you know, would have to close their doors. You can't do that. And this is the kind of thing that conservatives like to trot out sometimes. Like there was a point in 2019 when uh, Rashida Tlaib said, well, uh, it I doesn't, what, what did she say? Uh, $15 made sense. We started doing fight for 15. But um, now, especially when you look at like when some of these things are finally going to start to go into effect, we should really be talking about more like 18 or $20 an hour. And there were all these conservative figures like, you know, Ben Shapiro and people like that, you know, who are like, well, if, you know, she says 15 isn't good enough. 20. Well, why not 25? Why not? Why not a hundred? Why not a thousand? And, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's silly. And I think that, and I don't think you should have to be able to name the exact number to say that we can tell, yeah, $15 is fine. 18 is fine. 20 is fine. A thousand is too much. Right. You know, like, because, Life is full of things where, you know, you don't know exactly where to draw the line because there's a giant, messy gray zone in the middle. But that doesn't actually mean there aren't clear cases on both sides. Right? So um, like the, uh, the, the, the fancy way to, to think about this, there's uh, something called the Sorides paradox, you know, Sorides, uh, Greek for heap. Um, which is basically all right. You have two two stones next to each other. That's not a heap of stones. It's not a pile. 
all right, it's three stones a pile, it's four stones a pile, hard to say. Uh, or like you could do it with hair. Usually I use myself as an example, but I actually had a haircut recently, so it's not nearly as, you know, as, as big as usual, but you, know, you start out with somebody who has as much hair as I usually do, and you say, all right, clearly not bald. If you take off one, you know, or, and then you have somebody who has zero hairs in their head, clearly bald. All right, take the person who has zero hairs in his head. We add a hair. Is he, is he still bald? Yeah. The way we use the word bald, sure. He's still bald. You know, one hair is not enough to make you not bald. How about two? How about three? How about four? Well, none of these seem like they should, you know, it, that seems silly to say that three hairs, um, you know, three hairs is consistent with being bald, you know, but four isn't, right? That seems ridiculous. Uh, and so you might be tempted to say, well, one hair more or less can never make a difference. And that sounds plausible that one hair is never enough to make a difference. So if if X number of hairs makes you bald, X plus one still makes you bald. Problem is, you apply that a million times in a row until you have as much hair as I usually do, and you'd say, I'm bald. Well, something's gone wrong here somewhere. Uh, and exactly how to think about borderline applications of vague concepts is something that a lot of people in analytic philosophy spend like way too much of their lives thinking about opinions differ. But one thing that nearly everybody agrees on who's thought about this is that we shouldn't do what's called the continuum fallacy. The continuum fallacy is when you jump from, there are gray area cases we're not totally sure what to think about to therefore there are no clear cases. Like, yeah, you could probably come up with some numbers of number of hairs that uh, say, all right, is is that is that bald or not bald? I don't know, right? You know, like like I'm not sure exactly where to draw the line, but that doesn't mean that we can't clearly say that I'm not bald. And I don't know, pick a bald guy. Uh, the, uh, that uh, that that guy that guy is bald. And similarly, uh, it's a ridiculous response to Rashida Tlaib saying, "Well, we could have eighteen dollars instead of fifteen dollars." Now I say, "Well, why not a thousand dollars?" Because it's the continuum fallacy. So there we go. Uh, that felt good uh, because that was an old-fashioned TMDS debunk kind of explanation. Uh, and we are about uh, to uh, bring on our good friends and comrades, David Griscom and Matt Leck. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. How you doing? Uh, good, good, good. Uh, I'll want to introduce David before I start talking. David, David, you're muted. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> Man, is a media professional. <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad to be hanging out today. Very excited to be talking about our favorite thing, uh, cryptocurrency. Matt and I have dedicated our lives to this problem now. So. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I just want to say on the previous topic, that whole, um, you know, what wage is too much? Um, let's find out. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, like, let's just do an experiment. It's sort of like this. I've I haven't really been following the David Shore discourse yeah. very much, mm -hmm. um, other than like what people say about it on Twitter. Uh, which, um, but as far as like, will you get credit for doing popular things or X or Y? It's like do the popular things and see. Like, <laughs> I think Alex Pre made the point. Like, we don't have a sample size, so like, I guess we can just theorize about what might happen if we do this stuff. 
Yeah, I, I would I would definitely prefer to err on the side of like, you know, let's raise it a whole bunch <laughs> and, uh, and see if, uh, you know, see how that plays out. You know, we, we could we could then like then we could like start to gradually, you know, like take it down if we have to take it down. But uh, but yeah, it's, it's obviously it's 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 ridiculous. I mean, the idea that like, oh, you know, there's this thing that says 1.3 million people would you know, lose their jobs because God knows the federal government of the United States could not possibly come up with like things for 1.3 million people to do. Yeah. Um, so the, that minimum wage thing uh, was, um, was, was based, you know, was originally based on a tweet from, uh, from Gene Epstein, uh, who, uh, who's somebody that uh, actually debated back in April of, uh, of, of this year. Um, very different thing from from debating Charlie Kirk. Um, very uh, very different kind of right winger than, uh, than than Charlie Kirk. Uh, I I don't think there are any clips floating around of Gene Epstein talking about sexual anarchy. <laughs> yeah. What was was your uh, gauge of Kirk? Um. What was my gauge of Kirk? Uh, I'll, I'll say I'll say one thing, which is that. Uh, the, the entire time, and I mean, I'm not like, you know, telling any tales out of school here. I think you can actually look at the two previous installments of uh, Debate Night with Charlie Kirk that are already out, and, and you can see this in the videos, that when he does these things, he has this um, glossy uh, binder on his lap uh, mm -hmm. that, i got to say, screams prepared by staff to me. I'm sorry. Like Tucker's bringing back the Obama um, or the Biden, like uh, what is it called? Teleprompter hole conspiracy. Just as if we're supposed to take that seriously. Charlie Kirk has a binder of talking points. <laughs> Stop the yeah. presses. Check. I mean, again, it's, it's check out either of those two pre, you know, like the, the, the one before me, the abortion one, which is already up uh, on, on his YouTube, like check it out. Right. You could, you could see it right there. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think that would be, you know, if I were going to give a tip to Charlie, the future, you know, I, I think, I think you'll, um, I think you'll be prouder of yourself and other people will be prouder of you. If, if you, if you typical socialist Ben, very, very upset that somebody worked harder, prepared more for him for the event. <laughs> yeah. Terrible. <The> industrious mouse. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so going into uh, going into what um, we I brought you guys on to talk about. I was thinking about how we could set this up, and I was thinking about that debate with Gene Epstein from back in April because there was this really interesting moment that happened in it. So to set this up in that in that debate, um, you know, his view was basically the the typical like hardcore libertarian view that anything that's wrong with capitalism is because mm -hmm. of like crony capitalism that's that's mm -hmm. that the you know there's the the government is you know whatever you know how that goes Stick uh, yeah <laughs> and so uh and so there was this moment you know now he doesn't mention bitcoin in here although although i think it actually would have been a little bit better if he had um where you know, this came up and and at the end of the, the part you're gonna see, I, I, I asked him about this, and I think this is the point where a lot of other libertarians would start talking about Bitcoin. Uh Jake, do we have this clip? Ben, you were really 
offended by income inequality, right? So I want to touch specifically on that. So if we did what Gene said and rolled back crony capitalism and and really had a true clean capitalism where um, you know the intersubjective wants of consumers are are honored much more, uh, and we had a radical increase in standards of living because of this, but still had income inequality. Does that really matter? Is it just not envy at that point? I'm, I'm sorry. Can you repeat the last part of the question? Yeah. So if we had a had much higher prosperity with clean capitalism, uh, but still had income inequality, does it really matter at that point? Why would, would you still be offended by okay. it? I got you. Thank you. Uh, so yes, I uh, I think that first of all, of course, it goes without saying that I don't accept the hypothetical uh, that uh, the truly clean capitalism uh, would result in this greater prosperity. In fact, I think in the real life, in numerous ways, every successful market that's ever exist has been propped up by numerous forms of state intervention uh, that without state-backed currency, without limited liability corporations, without intellectual property protections, all sorts of things that many libertarians object to, uh, I think it's very unlikely that we would have a form of capitalism that was even close to the level of prosperity uh, that we uh, that we had right now. But even if I did accept uh, the premise, right? So it's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, if we had much less poverty, but we still had rampant in income inequality, uh, would that still be objectionable? Well, it's, it would certainly be less objectionable because one of the things that's wrong with income inequality uh, is that it results in uh, the coexistence of great wealth and great poverty and uh, redistribution could solve a lot of that. But that's not the only thing that's wrong with income inequality. Another thing that's wrong with income inequality is that it makes political equality ludicrously impossible uh, because concentrations of wealth in every country that's ever existed always lead to concentrations of political power. Sometimes Americans believe we can campaign finance and reform our way out of it not going to happen. Concentrated wealth always leads to concentrated political influence. Another thing that's wrong with economic inequality is that it gives some people much more power over others in workplaces. So yes, in the, I have to say, I find extremely unlikely hypothetical that you just gave me, uh, then, uh, then I would think that would remove one of my objections to income inequality, at least income inequality as extreme as we have. Uh, it certainly wouldn't reject uh, it certainly wouldn't um, would remove all of them, and I am very, very curious about how far Gene would actually want to go in removing the state from the economy, and whether he really believes that really removing the state from the economy, so we could have some libertarian vision of clean capitalism, is going to lead uh, to more prosperity as opposed to realistically quite a bit less. Well, okay. Well, thank you for the question, Ben. Uh, uh, briefly, again, I, I don't know. I, 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 I didn't invite Paul Krugman. I invited you uh, with respect to that question. Uh, it's, a, it's a big topic. Obviously, I do believe that under crony capitalism, the rich and powerful are, uh, are uh, supported. Uh, you even seem to believe in regulatory capture. You, su you suggested that. Uh, that clearly, if we weaken the state, if we go back to something like the vision of the founding fathers, we'd have much greater justice in this society because the state is used uh, to protect 
protect the powerful. That's the basic uh, nature of the state. You pass laws, you pass regulation, the, the powerful and the money and interest get interested. That's in my mind is just sort of basic political economy. The only thing I would say, however, uh, in terms of actually relating to the larger question is that what Ben wants to do is foster a, 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 a dystopia of, gov of greater government power. <laughs> wow, he got you. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th I think a killer response to the objection as well, if I wanted to talk about that, I talked to Paul Krugman. <laughs> yeah. Clean capitalism, they'll fit on a bumper sticker for you. I mean, it's so funny how much of like libertarian argument really does seem to be just trying to rebrand things, right? It's like we're criticizing the system. Oh, well, that's crony capitalism. And like the good magic capitalism, that's clean capitalism. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Imagining capitalism without an extremely coerced labor force. Yeah. It, it reminds me, honestly, like, I don't know if we want to bring this right to blockchain, but like it reminds me of the blockchain bros that are like, um, we could have blockchain without the um, uh, massive environmental costs. It's like, well, maybe you could. Theoretically, I, I feel like there's a fundamental uh, issue there, um, but I don't see it happening. Um, yeah, no, exactly. So, so I think that, I mean, really, I think what they mean by clean capitalism or not, you know, capitalism is not crony capitalism. It's capitalism where somehow magically people with lots of money can't find a way to translate that into political influence. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to get rules like written in their favor, which I don't know what the plan is for, for bringing that about. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, uh, you know, when, when he says, you know, oh, all the problems with capitalism are because of too much government intervention, this is what I'm always curious about, whether he, people like him really believe that if there was no state intervention at all in the economy, that you could even have a functioning economy. And it's always seemed to me that one of the clearest examples of this is, you know, good luck having even a minimally functional economy without state-backed currency. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the examples that we have of, uh, of, of thriving economies are all involved using currency that, you know, was, that, uh, was recognized by governments and accepted those taxes and, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, but, uh, so, so it seems, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could have a certain amount of economic activity with like the barter system, but, you know, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty skeptical, you know, that that's, that's going to be anything like, you know, a sort of thriving complex modern economy. But now a lot of libertarians think they have a good answer to this, uh, because it turns out we don't need this ridiculous government fiat currency uh, to uh, to do economic transactions. In fact, uh, we could just uh, we could just have Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies and uh, and that like privatized money uh, will work just as well. Um, so why isn't that true? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to get to with with crypto. And I think I, I, the way you're, you're starting it here, I think, is a good way to start because I think I'd like to get back to it, it later too, but I think one of the things that causes so much confusion about um, like Bitcoin and crypto as like an answer to a lot of the problems we have is the same thing that when people are talking about income inequality, they're talking about it as if like, I don't know, higher wages in themselves, right? Or even if people just had more money in their pocket, um, a lot of these problems of capitalism would be would be solved. I just put a pin in that for later because I do think it's like 
a lot of the hopes that people have about crypto um, are this kind of hope that we can escape like the labor problem. And I'm sorry to tell you right now that like, no, like things need to get done. We need to like allocate resources and things like that. That's a very important part of an economy. And I think, I don't know, so much of our discourse just completely ignores that part, right? Even the way we talk about income inequalities, like how much money do you have in the bank, right? Right. Anyway, um, the, the question of like private money versus state money has a long history in, in this country. Um, and maybe let's just start as to why, like we, we make the point a lot on when we talk about crypto is that in another scenario, a lot of the people who are advocating um, the libertarians in particular who are advocating for crypto, they would just be gold bucks. Like this is old school, right? Yep. Um, so we moved in this country and we had a few different kinds of currencies in the United States. And it's also very funny that your interlocutor in that last debate was talking about the fa founding fathers because read the Federalist Papers. Like the vast majority about that is trying to set up more and more go government intervention in the economy, <laughs> not less. I mean, Hamilton was really pushing for a highly centralized um, economy. But here's the thing. Private money doesn't work, right? We've had bank um, money. There's a lot of problems with that. Some people will accept it, but there's always fundamentally the risk that one day uh, bank issued currency, uh, you know, won't be accepted or the bank will just, you know, become insolvent. Uh, we tried state like literally, you know, like American states currency that didn't work either. Eventually, we decided to start issuing government, you know, U.S. federal government money. And at first um, it was backed by metals. That worked for a bit, but the problem was that the United States economy was constantly going, um, was having to deal with the problems of trying to source gold and eventually silver um, to be able to back the dollars that it was putting out, right? That created a kind of, I don't know, it was a, a kind of absurd task for a, a government at a certain point to be like, okay, we need to acquire as much gold as possible. And it also creates a problem um, for the uh, economy as well, because prices are constantly changing right which 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 is why like if you if you read the uh the thomas frank book from last year about populism mm -hmm. uh you know like the the farmers you know started uh the, the people's party like those you know those price changes you know because of the problems created by having a, a gold standard uh you know were you know one of the main things they were upset about uh and so the moderate populist position uh, was, uh, well, we could at least also have silver, you know, to like braid in this problem a little bit. Like at least we have a bigger supply of metals and then like the really radical out there populist position that would get you the 19th century, you know, version of why like, you don't understand economics, uh, <laughs> you know, would be, well, we don't actually need to have it backed by metals at all. It could just be fiat. You know, and honestly, and there, and there were actually plenty of the more radical populists were actually quite adamant about the idea of fiat currency um, as well over any kind of monetary uh, and I think this is actually kind of tragic um, and, and, and it's an important moment to actually learn from because the populist movement was really great for a lot of reasons. But it is the same kind of fault that especially in the United States that we fall into is that like if we only change bank policy, if yeah, we only yeah. change currency, then a lot of these problems would go away. It's like, no, you know, unfortunately, the problems are much deeper than that. And that's, uh, you know, and that's that's capitalism you know, at large. So like, you know, the, the, the problem like the populist movement, like we eventually incorporate silver. Um, as a back and the, by the way just people are interested i'll do this really quickly people were interested it was because we were finding a lot of silver so silver was really really cheap so that you could make the money supply bigger um and and that would help out basically farmers who are having to go into debt at the beginning of the season right um, but eventually that like demand gets incorporated into the state and it doesn't solve the fundamental uh tensions within capitalism but anyway um and then eventually we move to fiat currency right which is a yeah. currency that is not backed um by by precious metals 
And yeah, and, and I should say, by the way, just on that point, if I could solve all the problems, you know, just by attacking one of these nodes, I think it's, you know, I think it's bad enough when you're at least talking about um, like policy, like 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 changes at mm -hmm. the level of of what the laws are, as in like moving away from the gold standard. Uh, but it's much worse, and you know, this is you know, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but like. Mm -hmm you know, with the sort of left or leftish, you know, cases or, you know, or, or even like the sort of, you know, not necessarily left, but sort of hippie-ish cases, you know, for, uh, for crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think a lot of, a lot of it is, well, you know, you hate the banks, right? So, so, so we, we could, we could do something about, you know, bankers by, you know, by, by taking them out of our, our transactions. And among other things that are wrong with that, I think that there's a persistent delusion that uh, that you can escape from the problems of capitalism not by like political struggle and and, mm -hmm. and like taking over the society as it currently exists, but by just sort of like retreating into your own little alternate society, and that never works. Is yeah. crypto libertarian MMT? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Or some form. I mean, at least more people are making money from it, I guess. Uh -huh. <laughs> but but this but the same obsession with like you know with, with the like you know I've I've got the big magic bullet you know it's that if you just think about money the right way yeah. you know everything else will follow you know like I think a lot of at least pop MNT you know and, and crypto enthusiasts there's some, there's some overlap there. Right, right. I don't mean to. I don't mean to. No offense to the MMT folks. Don't get out of well, I mean, that. You know, we can hit at them too. I mean, <laughs> but like the thing is, is that uh, <laughs> um, I know. I mean, this is this really hits on all things. And I'm just gonna say, Ben, prepare yourself because Matt and I have done I think four like long segments on this, and everyone's always mad because you leave like one thing out or like because the thing is with crypto is it touches on so many different things. I think starting from like the the larger scale like we're doing right now is, is really important then we can get to all the stuff that everyone's gonna get worked up about us for glossing over in this quick history right but i think that a lot of these problems do come out of the fact that most americans don't really you know we have a kind we don't really think about money that much we don't really understand yeah. central bank policy and like the general inclination of most people is correct right that these are corrupt organizations that screw us over um, but the problem, like the, the solution, at least, for example, with like the Federal Reserve or central banking, maybe to be more um, accurate in general, not necessarily just the central reserve, is that while they do things that hurt working people constantly, that's because they are controlled and they're and they're the people who they're answering for are the elites and the super wealthy in this society. Um, this I bring this up because like, why do some of the bourgeoisie, why do some of the rich like want to push back to, to gold currency, it's because um, they don't like having to deal with the Federal Reserve, you know, essentially a central bank having control over monetary policy, right? And even though the Federal Reserve regularly um, pursues monetary policy that is to the benefit of the super rich, it does have the power to, for example, screw over some industries, screw over some capitalists. Um, and then obviously in the long term, could pursue policies that would help out the vast majority of people versus the, the elite. Right. And because I don't know, because like so many people see it and it's a, the federal reserve, the way it works is very shadowy. It's strange. Most people don't understand its machinations, right? You basically get like these big pronouncements from it every, you know, once yeah. a year, um, you know, it can seem like a very mysterious organization. I understand why there's a lot of conspiracies about it and I'm not 
coming in here today saying like the Federal Reserve is great and it's standing up for working people. Um, but a lot of the attacks that you get from the, especially from the libertarian side that are, in my opinion, are very conspiratorial um, and also don't line up with American history because the Federal Reserve has been one of the best tools that the American government has had to crush uh, not just American workers' power, but also any kind of growing governments, um, specifically in, in Latin America, right? Um, and when we make this move over to like fiat currency, though, specifically, it means that the government actually has a lot of potential to mess with the money supply, not just it, like in terms of inflation, um, you know, but also essentially because the Federal Reserve is setting like the rate of interest across the economy. Right. The Federal Reserve has a lot of power. And for people who are like hardcore libertarians, frankly, you know, a lot of rich folks, this is a threat. Um, not just to their ideology, but they're, you know, they're worried about what could, could be done with it. Right. So this is why there's always been like this kind of anti-fiat currency from like the, the right. And there's always been a desire to pursue private money um, amongst the right wing and, 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 and capitalists. But the problem is implementation um, of it and acceptance. And they haven't found any way to do it, which is why right now there is such a fixation on crypto and Bitcoin. Yeah, I just want to make one point on uh, the fiat currency thing. I was reading um, The Politics of Bitcoin Software as Right-Wing Extremism by David Columbia, which is a, a really good text on this, which goes into a lot of the sort of origins and particularly in gold bug uh, circles of mm. cryptocurrency. And I, I think like crypto people kind of hand wave it away as maybe genetic fallacy uh, sort of stuff. But I actually think um, there's a little bit more to it. And I just want to share this one bit about fiat currency. Frequently in Bitcoin discussions, one reads a circular assessment that fiat in fiat money refers to the fiat of the state. That is an official decree that turns a currency into money. While there's an element of truth to this, it does not reflect the history of the usage of the term fiat money. Since money is inherently a creation of the state, regardless of whether it is based on a token of intrinsic value, even a gold standard would be fiat currency according to this definition. One suspects that fiat by the state is used in these definitions because the thought of some non-state actor deliberately suggesting that it could flout national law and declare its own currency to be money would be unthinkable until very at least very until very recently. But there is no way around the fact that Bitcoin advocates have no mechanism except fiat by which to declare their currency to be money. And I bring this up in the context of Bukele and that whole experiment. And of course, like El Salvador. Yeah, it's 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 all just it's all marketing, which is fundamentally why I would like to take this opportunity and give them an argument to say, like, this is the retirement of me talking about Bitcoin. Well, I mean, we've had these aspirations, David and I, um, for a while. But until it goes from Bitcoin is doing this uh, or crypto is doing this from uh, crypto could, mm -hmm. it could help the next strike wave. It could help this or that. Do it show a pattern of doing that and then like maybe we can start taking some of this liberatory stuff seriously because as far as i'm concerned it is just gold bug stuff it is the like the marketing um it's all like yeah look at el salvador or look at walmart's now buying into blockchains like that doesn't prove that it could be useful to the left and also well, what came of that yeah so so there, there there are two issues uh one is is usefulness to the left that do want to get into that a little bit right because because i think that a lot of that mm -hmm. does come down to like like you know when i look at like people writing up like left cases for it right i mean i i see words like you know mutualism and cooperative movement and stuff mm -hmm. set off some alarm bells for me because it's like yeah this is that delusion that you can you can do away with the present society not through political struggle within it but by exiting it you know like have 
Uh, and, and I don't think that works. I mean, like, I think cooperatives are nice. Uh, you know, buy my books, Red Ebbas. Uh, I think it's probably useful to have a few exist, you know, as, as sort of proof of concept that workers can run the show without, you know, unelected bosses. But, like, you're never going to get out of capitalism for a variety of reasons by, mm -hmm. by, by retreating from it. Uh, and, you know, there are a few... Um, you know, there are a few sort of concrete things that people people bring up as like potential good uses. I'm pretty I'm pretty skeptical. Uh, like, you know, for example, uh, there was the story uh, in Al Jazeera uh, that uh, that was that was posted a little bit ago about uh, you know about uh, PayPal uh, discriminating against uh, against Palestinians. Uh, you know, rights groups, PayPal, and discrimination against Palestinians. And I, I saw somebody, you know, uh, you know, not even gonna name the person. You know, I think he's a good guy. You know, but like I saw somebody posted this and said, "Oh, well, this seems like something that Bitcoin could help with." And I, well, no, right? Because um, like even in the United States, there are all of three thousand merchants in mm. the entire country. Uh, most of them not very big that accept Bitcoin as a form of, of payment. And, and so it, it seems like if you're going to like, what's, what's the plan here, right? Like, cause, cause if you, you know, sure. I mean, somebody at the West bank could buy some Bitcoin, but then do what with it, right? Well, like are, are, are they purchasing things with it or are they translating it back to real money and then, and then purchasing things with that, in which case you you have the exact original problem that it was supposed to solve. I, I think this, yes, and, and there are worse pieces and arguments than that out there. I mean, I think one thing that really, like, sparked Matt and I's desire, like, because Matt and I have had these feelings about Bitcoin for a long time, but, you know, everyone gets really worked up about it, so we never figured it was an issue. But once we started to see these kind of, like, humanitarian promises around it, um, and, and also what Bukele is doing, um, you know, we started to realize, okay, well, this is actually starting to become something that people need to understand why it is a problem right there's a piece of what in bitcoin magazine about how like uh bitcoin is going to help you know palestinians as well like you know fight against apartheid and what's so frustrating and, and this is um what's so frustrating about the way a lot of these kind of like humanitarian arguments about bitcoin are, are set up is that like they go through like a long checklist of like all the things that people go through right just like, you know, they're talking about the blockade and like, you know, the 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 fact that people can't come in and out and the checkpoints in, in, in Palestine and, you know, the insecurity that comes with you know living in an occupied place that can be bombed at any time um, by an extremely powerful military. Right. And you were like, wow, yeah, this is this is it. And then they're like, OK, well, the, the solution to this is like cryptocurrency. You know, then your eyes start to roll over and then you really start to, to read the, the argument and it doesn't really go anywhere. It really is just like and this will be the solution full stop for maybe a, and, and it really if you look closely it's always like a slippage between this might help a certain people get some money out and like in certain contexts maybe we applaud money laundering and that's good like to get sure. like, evade some things fine but as far as like a, something that could scale up and and help an entire society of course there's there's no plan for that at all well yeah. there's no way it's this is really important to get right because uh, like not only is it's it's implementation is going to be a, a big problem but like in the scenario that ben was just putting forward earlier it's like one you what are you going to buy with bitcoin in the first place two this is an extremely volatile um currency in the first place right so you, this is like 
you know, people put money in the putting money in the bank is not like the best use of your money, right? If you want to make money, putting in the bank is is for suckers, right? That's why rich people don't have millions of dollars in their bank account. They have a, a little bit of money, and they, you know, they, they what diversify, 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 right? Um, but people, you do want to have a certain amount of money in the bank because it's secure, and in the United States, it's backed by the federal government. If anything right. were to happen in in Palestine, right, and in a lot of these other parts of the world where they try to push it. Basically, what they're talking about is that there's a lack of like a digital payment system, right? Um, but to use Bitcoin in Palestine, right, you would either have to have a computer that has 24-hour access to the internet that is also extremely powerful to be able to, to run um, all the protocols necessary um, to hold your own Bitcoin or go through a provider, right? So then when we're talking about the original problem with PayPal, right? It's the same problem. And the problem is the fucking occupation, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's, that, that's, I mean, that's clearly the larger problem, right? But, but, it's also, like, but it's like, it's not even a way around it in that sense, because no, like, to do it, like to, to, to do what they're suggesting, you would still have to go through a, a third party system, basically. And that's how most people hold Bitcoin is like through a third party system that holds it for you, not just you holding it on your computer, right? And like, yeah. this is the thing about it is like the people who make these arguments, they know better, but they expect people that, that don't get it, um, you know, the, the people who don't fall really closely to just sort of not understand what, what they're saying. And the biggest point of, about Bitcoin, there's so much to get to, and I want to make sure we're not missing anything here because I like I want to get on the left stuff soon. But like we there, I can well, already hear them getting the mad stuff. at us for not explaining it enough. Right. Here's the fundamental problem with Bitcoin is that it's a speculative asset. Right. And it's a game where you want to be the last sucker holding the back, yeah. right? And you want to make sure more and more people are continuing to buy this, this crypto, uh, this, this, this asset, so that it, it continues to rise in value. Um, and then you, so you can sell it to somebody off in the future. And there's a lot of people, I, I make a distinction when we talk about this, there's true believers. Um, and then there's just like, you know, prospectors, right? There's just people trying yeah. to make a quick buck on everybody else. Yeah, I've, I've, and, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been rewatching, uh, uh, Deadwood, uh, the, uh, the, the first yeah. season, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of selling stuff to, uh, both, both the actual, uh, the, the actual, uh, stakes and, and so also the point, like, the point is that they're, they're selling they're stuff. Very good business. And the, the reason that we have left versions and humanitarian versions of Bitcoin and super far right versions of Bitcoin, right? The way that it's being sold and the, the things that it's going to solve is because it's. I'm sorry, man. This is this is because like, the markets. Buyer beware when they promise you everything. And like this is the thing with Bitcoin is it promises almost every problem that you could ever imagine. It's somehow go going to solve it, and that should put red flags up. Yeah. yeah. So 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 I want to be really really sure everybody gets the point about the Palestine example. Cause like, I mean, some of the other humanitarian examples, look, could you set up some complicated arrangement where every time you do a transaction with this particular thing, there's like 1% that like goes to, you know, strike fund or something. Sure. You could, mm -hmm. uh, you could also do the same thing in a much less convoluted way with regular money. Yeah. Like that, you know, that like, the, like whatever services you're providing with that, you know, you're, uh, you're, you're doing that. Uh, uh, Appreciate that very much, uh, Fuzzy Slippers. I'll read that one. So send it in a donation because it's just because it's beautiful to see the TMBS crew together. Keep it up, y'all. Would love to see uh, Matt and David on more left is best. So uh, thank you for that. But um, but also uh, in the specific example about uh, thinking that uh, that with uh, you know with with the you know Palestinians uh, that you know that this would get around the the PayPal problem, uh, like you don't. Okay, two things, right? First, as you say, um, 
a lot of people on the you know West Bank do not have as regular access to you know electricity to provide Wi-Fi uh, as as the you might be, app. You know, as you might be imagining. But, but like, even if you do, generally speaking, right? Most people who buy things with Bitcoin. And by the way, just to review the percentage of Bitcoin that's being used as currency that's being spent on things is what ninety five percent, ninety nine percent. Oh, I think it's something insane. Like it's like only like one point seven percent is actually used for. Yeah. I, I, you know, this is actually funny that this was a this was a setup because I heard you say it before. Um, you actually just overestimated. It. It's one point three. Okay. So uh, the, uh, at least that's what I remember <laughs> from the previous one. But uh, yeah, it's one point three percent is actually being used to to purchase things. The rest uh, is uh, being held by a uh, Winklevosses uh, in uh, sort of reserve in case they need to really get democracy and decentralization going. But like, but like in the in the case, you know of uh of these hypothetical palestinians using it to uh to get around the uh, paypal discrimination okay first of all even out of that 1.3 percent most people are still using like a, a third party uh to spend uh bitcoin yeah. you know that it's, it's not really you know the original thing was every individual user is going to be their own node that was totally unwieldy uh you know in, in practice most people are, are trusted a third party and trust is the key word because um if if the third party that you're trusted decides to just take your money, uh, you do not have the options that you have uh, if you have like real money in a bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and also, and you know, and also you you know, like fraud, fraudulent you know, fraudulent transactions. That's the thing. I mean, like, okay, so like, let's get into some of the big claims of of of, of Bitcoin, right? Why this is a revolutionary currency. The main one that people like to push on is that is decentralized, right? And decentralized is like, you know, it's 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 a buzzword, it's a fantasy. It can, you know, whatever your little heart desires that decentralization means. If for us as leftists, it means like getting away um, from you know nasty corporations, that's what it means. If you're a right winger, it means making sure that you don't get taxed. Um, that's what it means, right? It can mean anything to any 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 person. But functionally what what decentralization means in the crypto cryptocurrency world and specifically with bitcoin um is that you have to work as your own bank right and some people say like well that's liberatory right i don't have to be you don't have to deal with all the nasty paperwork and shit like that um but when you put money into your bank account in the united states it's there and it is backed by the federal government right um it's backed against collapse right it's backed against um fraudulent uh, transactions um, or, you know, chargebacks. Um, and it's certainly backed in a way that uh, if somebody is scamming you for money, that money could be tracked and then retraced and returned to you. And that person could face criminal charges. Bitcoin requires you to serve as all, as all of those different functions that banks function as, right? So you need to be your own security, right? You need to, you know, be smart enough to be, you know, prevent protecting yourself from potential like economic collapse that so basically it's like don't be stupid right which is like a really shitty way to to you know to back and 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 secure you know an, an economy um and it's it just like it, it requires you to do all these functions that banks do um again for no real upside to yourself other than potentially subverting um subverting like the law right subverting certain kinds of restrictions um and or being functionally untraceable and more and more we're finding that bitcoin is not as untraceable um as as they claim now it well, does take a lot of effort 
for the FBI, for example, to be able to figure out what you're doing on there. But they are very happy um, to, to spend the time necessary. They found plenty of people who have been using, uh, you know, Bitcoin, for example, to, you know, to uh, service and purchase like illegal drugs or sell illegal drugs. Right. right which, it takes which, a long time. So they're not going to come at you for like buying some LSD on the Silk Road or something like that. Right. But like this kind of big promise too that it's completely untraceable has been proven to be fraudulent as well. Which is, yeah, I mean. And, right. and that's not the thing that would be attractive to me in the first place, but it's just like, these are the big claims about it. It's like decentralized, um, but that means you have to be your own security. And then also like your own like oppa research, right? You always have to be working, be one step ahead of the people who are following your, your trail as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think decentralized is the last thing that you would want in a currency. Um, and yeah. to the like, you know, for all of these reasons, right? You know, what I want in a currency uh, is that, um, you know, it can, you know, that the money that's in the bank is is backed up. So it's it's not just going to like disappear, you know, due to something mm -hmm. happening uh, with the bank uh, that uh, that in the event of an economic crisis, you know, that there's a the government that issues it, which I hope I'd have some kind of democratic control over, you know, could, could you know, can like actually intervene to set things right. Uh, ask Greeks what it's like to not have that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to uh, I'd like it to be centralized enough that you could, you know, that you could do things like give me a reverse when, you know, when, when somebody uses my credit card, you know, yeah. my debit card for the bank, you know, like in, in, in Texas. I'm like, well, I've been there. I don't like, you know, what happened there? Yeah. Uh, and, and all of these all of these things require decentralization. The only thing that would potentially even, you know, be good about decentralization is either, OK, everybody hates the banks. That you know that you've got this fantasy that you know you're going to bring down uh, the power of banks just by like individuals, you know, mm -hmm. pulling out of it. Uh, which again, so like I think there have been like various forms of communes and alternate societies and stuff. As long as there has been capitalism, none of this stuff ever goes anywhere. Or because you're trying to to hide it, which uh, actually is a mixed bag because in some ways it's actually much less transparent because the blockchain technology is actually set up in ways that make it impossible to cover your tracks in uh, mm -hmm. in certain certain respects right it's it's like a ledger that you can add to you can't subtract from mm -hmm. um but like also okay sure i mean if people if if look i mean if you could use it to uh if you could use it to 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 buy lsd on silk road uh, or, 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 you know, I don't know, like, you know, get around a sanction or sanctions or something good for you. Uh, I, I have nothing against that. Uh, but the idea that has some great, like systemic, uh, liberatory potential just, just seems bizarre to me. I, I, I don't, I don't understand the systemic thing, like, I feel like if you're really worried about the systemic problem of money surveillance, you would just be a paper money, like, zealot, right? <laughs> like, like, that's what I would personally be doing. But, I, but the, the, I mean, the claim is that you can't do digital payments. And, like, and like that's, like, the real demand. So, like, that's why there's a fixation on remittances. Yeah. Um, even, like, even, even though in most places there are actually much cheaper and safer ways to do remittances. Well, that's the thing. In El like, Salvador. Yeah. <laughs> El Salvador is a great example of that, you know, and for people who aren't familiar with this, um, you know, they've Bitcoin is now legal tender there and it has been an unmitigated disaster. 
Um, and, and the promise was that it was going to make remittances between El Salvador and the United States easier. For people who aren't familiar with what the word remittances is, that's basically, you know, people who are living in the United States and you have family who's living in a poorer country, you send them, you send them money to help them out. It's because on the exchange rate too, um, you know, a few, bu- you know, a, you know, a small sum of, of your, you know, a weekly wage uh, could go back home and, and really provide a lot for folks. And for countries like El Salvador, countries like Haiti, Hell, even countries like India, um, that ends up being actually a significant part of 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 the uh, you know of the economy, and um, there have been plenty of people who want to get their hands on that kind of activity, um, and and what we've seen in El Salvador um, is that they try to come up with a solution that was less efficient and ended up being more expensive. Um, I, it's just there's like there's so many use cases that people try to push Bitcoin for. And the thing that's frustrating about it is that like in its best fantasies, um, it's it's quite like dangerous and I think it would be damaging. Um, and then in this actual practical rollout, it's incredibly underwhelming um, and, and inefficient, which, again, go, why we go back um, to the, the fir- something that Ben noted earlier is that the vast majority of Bitcoin activity is not buying and selling things. It's not using it. So they call it a currency, right? People call it a currency, but people don't really use it as a currency at all. Right. And you start to realize that for the most part, this is just a huge hype chain. Right. That's like functionally what it is. Right. It's something that you um, you buy. And if you buy it low enough, you're good and you can sell it high enough, then you're even better. Um, And you tell all these people that it's going to solve all these problems and hope that that ends up helping out. Right. And it's also, you know, and in the meanwhile, hope that, you know, you don't get messed up at the big Elon Musk shock, right? Whenever he like tweets about right. it the wrong way or whatever, right? It's an extremely volatile. Um, I don't, I don't like to use the term currency because I just really functionally, like I do not consider. Yeah. I, I mean, to the, to the extent this use as a currency though, it is extraordinarily volatile in ways that go, go back to, um, you know, what we were saying about the gold standard, because the thing that was bad about the gold standard is intentionally replicated in the design of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. like, but actually much more so because mm-hmm. there's no gold at the end of the chain. Exactly. So, so, so you can't like, like, like at least, at least when there were these crises in 19th century America, I mean, at least you had the option out there that you could like set up an expedition, and go gold and like mine and, and like find some more gold and add them to add it to the currency. Whereas as Bitcoin enthusiasts never tire of pointed out, uh, there is a fixed supply. You know, there are no Bitcoin mines uh, to uh, to find more to find more Bitcoin in. Uh, so so the thing that's after most- a certain point, I mean, they're still producing them today. Yeah, but there's but they said there's only ever going to be a certain like what, what's, what's what's I can't the, remember the number off the top of my head. I should have had in my notes, but yeah, no, I mean, like no, Matt, for Matt, sure, Matt, like it, Matt, it's Matt, 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 did not, not, Matt, did you not put that in David's binder? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, like, there's no doubt about it. Like, it's that's a really important point. It's like there is like an actual end uh, as part of the system, which means that. Um, you know, the, the currency is always going to be fluctuating in value, right? It's always going to be moving, um, right? Again, which makes it extremely insecure. And, you know, for people who are curious, like Bitcoin mining as a process, and Matt might, Matt might be best sort of like talking a little bit about that if, if, if you'd like, um, like the process behind it. But Bitcoin mining itself, right, how new Bitcoins are created is an extremely, extremely wasteful 
um, of, of, of energy process, right? People focus a lot about how much energy it wastes, and that's very, very worthwhile. I mean, it produces, it wastes more energy than entire countries. Um, but one thing that's also notable is the amount of e-waste that it creates. Um, the average Bitcoin transaction has something like 272 grams of e-waste per transaction. For people who aren't familiar with e-waste, I mean, that's just basically like actual physical computer equipment that, you know, breaks down, right? At, um, you know, then it's basically trash. Um, so per transaction, and, and for people who are familiar, like a, a iPhone is like 140 grams, right? So like every time they're doing these transactions, um, they're creating all of this e-waste. And I'm just saying like, if you are somebody who believes that this is a system that you want to see implemented on a global scale, right? Imagine, um, you know, the chaos that would ensue if every time I bought a latte, right? I don't buy many lattes these days, but a beer maybe is more applicable. Um, you know, every time I bought a beer, you know, we're wasting essentially two iPhones worth of, uh, you know, uh, creating two iPhones worth of e-waste. I mean, it's it's just in, it's unbelievably impractical. And again, the goals that they're pursuing, they're not valued enough or important enough uh, to be willing to make this, uh, you know, this trade-off. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I I mean, I, I think that the, you know, I, I think that the reason that it's not like, you know, Matt, you're talking about people say that talking about the ideological origins of, of, of crypto is genetic fallacy. And I, I, I know what they mean by that, right? That they, that like, oh, just because bad people came up with something for a bad reason doesn't mean there necessarily could be a good reason. But I, I think in this case, the reason that that's actually relevant information is that um, for a lot of other purposes for which people have have flogged this doesn't make any sense. Like, what, why would you do that, right? I mean, like, like it, it just seems like it. There are not a lot of upsides here as compared to real money, and uh, and and there are a lot of um, and there's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of downsides that real money doesn't have. Uh, but the fixation on it makes sense if you are basically embarrassed by the fact that you are a huge free market guy and. You know, you you want to tell yourself the story about how markets function best when they're just left alone, and you've got this embarrassing fact right at the heart of the whole thing that all of these markets, you know, the lifeblood of the whole thing is government currency that it very clearly could not function without. And then so it's like, yeah, that that sort of fantasy, even though you have to do the, all these bizarre and elaborate things to to even use it, right? That the the fantasy that you could have totally privatized money actually does make sense for that perspective. Now, yeah. th that said, um, you know, I, I do want to make sure because Matt said this is the last time I was going to talk about it, and because um, and, and because I, you know, you guys actually sent me a couple of weeks ago some 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 comments that people had left on, uh, on on your videos saying like, well, you know, if the you know, if, if uh, you know, if Ben Burgess were talking about this, you know, he'd be, he'd be, you know, he'd be much more fair about it uh, and uh, and let, less dismissive, um, since uh, they've apparently never heard me talk about Bitcoin before. But uh, I, I don't want to disappoint those people too much. Uh, so, so, so I, I want to show you guys at least a few minutes of um, of the the, the case uh, the case for this. So this is uh, this is somebody at a debate it's this weird libertarian and libertarian debates the other guys a gold bug we're not going to watch that part but uh uh you know he's he's making an opening statement he's explaining why we're wrong and as a matter of fact bitcoin can become not just el salvador 
the world's money. Uh, also, I drove up from Boston uh, yesterday, and I noticed on the Welcome to New Hampshire uh, sign, it said, live free or die. And you got to imagine, for, as a Canadian, I'm not used to that kind of shit, right? We're more used to, like, do whatever the government tells you to do, and everything will be fine. So uh, I thought that was pretty fucking awesome to see that as a slogan. Um, I'm not going to be, you know, we have to keep this narrow because this is the proposition of Bitcoin will inevitably replace government fiat as a preferred medium of exchange. Bitcoin is a very deep rabbit hole. There's lots of stuff to discuss about it. So I'm going to have to necessarily keep a lot of this fairly brief and I'll focus on the resolution specifically. Uh, I'm not going to be talking about Austrian economics today or quoting, quoting dead Austrians or any kinds of economic uh, economists, actually. And that's because I don't think it's necessary. Bitcoin is money, and money is something we interact with on a daily basis. And so I think money is a very intuitive thing. It's just not something that people have, have had the opportunity to actually think about because we've never really had a choice. You use the government fiat or else. But now we do have a choice. And what this is fostering is a tremendous explosion of people that are for the first time thinking about money and asking these questions about what makes a good money and what money should be and what money shouldn't be. And so what I have done for my own Bitcoin journey is to uh, do that, to think about this critically and not rely on appeals to authority by anyone. So the why of Bitcoin adoption. Um, the thing is, is that big people adopt Bitcoin for different reasons. There's no particular single reason why people adopt Bitcoin. Now, some people may say, well, I adopt Bitcoin because I don't like being stolen from. And I'd like to keep the value of my savings over time and not have the government siphon it off year after year. And in particular, in particularly yeah, I mean. egregious way over the last 18 months, as I'm sure you're all aware. Other people do it because they want to send remittances back to their family without taking a 10 or 20% haircut. Other people do it because they want to engage in censorship resistant communication. Other people do it because they don't want to live in fear of saying the wrong thing on social media and having their credit card canceled or their bank account closed off to them. Other people do it out of ideological reasons because it's not right for the government to take your money without your consent, which of course is the hidden tax of inflation. So there's many different reasons why people adopt mm -hmm. Bitcoin, but the punchline here is why I think it will inevitably become the preferred medium of exchange is because people will continue to see value in it and it cannot be stopped. So if you put those two things together, ultimately Bitcoin wins. And I think what we'll end up seeing happen is it will be increasingly economically disadvantageous not to opt into the Bitcoin system. I don't know if fiat currency is going to crumble and collapse. Maybe it's able to persist far longer than we all think it might. But what I think will happen is more and more people will see the benefits to accrue to you if you adopt or if you opt into the Bitcoin system your life becoming cheaper, your options becoming greater, your freedom becoming greater, and many other benefits. And over time, I think the imperative will be to opt into the Bitcoin system and leave the corrupt, unfair fiat system behind. I don't think governments, gonna stop, governments are going to stop Bitcoin. I don't think they can. Governments have tried to ban Bitcoin, and in certain places they've been successful at banning it, 
but that doesn't mean people have stopped owning it. That doesn't mean people have stopped trading it. I mean, we look and see what the, the, the government ban on drugs was like, and this is sending tons and tons of physical material across borders. You're telling me that something that exists in the digital ether, they're going to have any chance of stopping that if they want to? No. So I don't think government banning or stopping Bitcoin is a credible threat. The network is too open. It's a global open network where innovation happens on a daily basis. It's far too agile for any centralized government to ever stop. And I think the thing that gets lost in these uh, debates and these conversations is that this is a process of adoption. So this is the, what we're witnessing right now is Bitcoin being monetized globally. And that means that <laughs> adoption will look different in different places by different people, and it'll happen at different speeds and for different reasons. And so there's no uniform Bitcoin adoption. What we're seeing is how it's taking place throughout the world for different reasons for people in different situations. So, you know, Bitcoin is at the beginning of an adoption S-curve. And as far as technological uh, adoption S-curves are concerned, it's tremendously rapid. It may not seem like that to us all the time. We may wish it would happen more quickly. But Bitcoin is growing extremely fast and there doesn't seem anything set to stop it. So one of the stunning achievements of Bitcoin, and again, I can't get into all the different ways of why Bitcoin is so great. But one is that it's introduced a concept for the first time that is a paradigm shift in economics. And that is that it's introduced the idea of absolute scarcity. And so that means that it, the supply is totally inelastic. So let's assume the full issuance of Bitcoin is 21 million when it's fully issued in around the year 2140. So that means that no matter how much demand there is for more Bitcoin, there will be no more supply coming online. Now, interestingly, economists and academics that speak on this actually see that as a negative, which I think is actually quite absurd because this is the <laughs> this is one of the primary how are they going to opt in? One of the primary innovations that Bitcoin represents. And the reason why, just flip the notes here, yeah, really is because that. we've <laughs> always had to work with a money that does not reflect what it is we're actually trading. When we commit ourselves to create value to work, what are we doing? We're sacrificing our time. Now, in the world of every good up until Bitcoin, if there was more demand, there would be more supply, right? But now we exist in an environment where no matter how much demand there is for it, there's no more supply. And the only other thing that has those characteristics that we engage with or that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis is our time. No matter how much we want more, we're not going to get it. When we spend it, we're not going to get it back. And we have a set amount of it. I guess we wish we knew how much exactly that was, but the punchline is we have a certain amount and we ain't getting any more. And so the reason why Bitcoin is such an incredible innovation is because we finally have something that can, can reflect the sacrifice of us spending our time. When we spend our time to create value and to do work, now we can get something in return that has commensurate qualities with that sacrifice. Oh. We get something that's equally right, limited David? as the time that we commit and sacrifice to creating that value. That's a yeah. tremendous Mark's innovation. And I this. think it's going to rewrite the field of economics because now we finally have a standard unit of measure for economics, not one that's constantly changing. Nailed it. And this also, of course, the 
big benefit of this is no more theft, right? When, <laughs> when the supply can't be increased willy-nilly, that means that the people that create the money no longer have access to your savings just because they can create more supply and dilute the value of, of what you own. The ratio of how much Bitcoin you own relative to the total will never change. And that is an amazing thing. Um, now, as I said, some people think that that is actually a drawback. Mm -hmm. And oh. one of the reasons why they cite that as a drawback is the influence on prices. And they say, well, it's too volatile for pricing. We need stable prices. And I actually think this is a leftover from the central banking era. Stable prices is a misguided objective. What you want is pristine prices. Why is that? <laughs> well, what are prices? Prices are meant to be information like porn star. regarding the preferences of the market actors. And so when you hold constant the supply of a money, that means that all the, the changes in prices are reflective of changes in preferences of market actors. Again, we've never had that before, but it, it, it permits pristine information to the market. And the more pristine the information the market has, the more it's capable of more meeting pristine, the wants of market, participate, uh, market participants and properly and efficiently, most efficiently allocating the resources that that market has. Oh, my God. Can we, uh, there's so much, and I, I want to hear the prompt, Ben, but I just want to say, <laughs> in the last bit, it's like you can see it's just like there's so much branding in it, right? Like pristine prices, right? It's like, I don't know. You're being sold something when people start talking like that. That's not somebody thinking about the economy, you know, right? That's somebody trying to make you buy shit from him. Well, my, my favorite part of it is that I, I think – there was a part of the middle where he endorsed the labor theory of value. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. <laughs> that your time that you spend working is the foundation of, uh, of economic value. I think he said that. Um, but uh, I, I, yeah, that that was that was bizarre. But I, but I think that my, my favorite thing about that right is this is this is the super duper bit Bitcoin enthusiast. Uh, you know who's who's making his his best case and uh, and he is this is the uh, this is like the original ideological context of uh, of Bitcoin are people like this guy and I really enjoy that last that last part that uh, you don't want stable prices you want yeah. pristine prices. Um, I, I'm real curious about who this you is that that doesn't care uh if 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 like prices are bouncing all over the place and you know and because because that uh you know like like all that's important is that you know is that pristine market signals are being set you know about uh about what should be produced i guess like that's 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 the important thing you know that like whether you know whether your like plans for like the groceries you're planning to buy that week you know are gonna be mm -hmm. are gonna be disrupted you know because of these wild price swings you know whatever that's 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 not even a worthwhile goal, you know. Like, what, why aren't you focusing on whether the prices are pristine? Yeah, I, that, and then I mean, I mean, who he's talking to though is people who hold Bitcoin, right? And like, this is like the or, or people who don't who like might be persuaded to like you know throw some real money at it, and like 
I mean, there because there's two sides. There's two parts of the argument that he's making that are worth debunking. And like, there's the ideological side, and then there's like the actual mechanical side. Um, I, I don't want to talk too much. So I, I, I want to hear what Matt says, but like a couple of things, like, um, you know, like the fixation on the fact that like there won't be any more bitcoins, right? One on a practical side is is very funny and, and is, is also extremely frightening if they ever got their way, which they won't because this right. is not a currency. Um, but can you imagine what's going to happen when we're starting to be, you know, what, what 2140, when no mm -hmm. more will be created and all of the people who lost their Bitcoins, <laughs> you know, and all the coins that have been lost, right, because somebody forgot the code or lost the code, et cetera. Just, there's yeah, nothing we can do you, about you, that. You, right? you our brilliant US. system, for, for some reason that I frankly do not understand, I understand, like, why they like to use it as a selling point. I do not understand from, like, a macroeconomic level why you would want to limit the amount of currency Um in, well, in the economy because well, well, I, I do just want to jump i mean you're making a really yeah. important point but i do i do just want to jump in and like circle and underline something you just said because it's really important like we were talking about some of the other contrasts between spending normal money digitally and uh at at you know spending bitcoin if you know if you're the you know that tiny tiny percentage of people who are actually you know trying to spend it uh or or even just storing you know, storing mm -hmm. like as as Bitcoin or as or as or as real money, uh, from from the perspective of of like just an ordinary consumer, because, um, like, if you if you bank at a bank, right? You do online banking, like you know, like like most people mm -hmm. do now. Um, here's a thing that might happen sometimes: you forget your password. People forget their passwords all the time. Yeah. Well. You know, if, if I forget my password at like, you know, fill the name of the bag, uh, I try, I try, I realize I don't have it. There's a little thing there that says forget, forgot password, you know, and, uh, and you can like, they'll ask you a bunch of information to figure it out and you can set a new one. Whereas the, uh, the Bitcoin key that uh, is much too large for, you know, any normal person to remember. So like, you know, you have a, like, you end up having to like put it on a physical USB or something. And you lose that, and that's just it. You're fucked. Mm -hmm. Like, like that. That seems like just like all of the like larger political points and all of all the extremely good point about macroeconomics that you're building up to aside. Like, just 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 from a logistical standpoint, that doesn't seem like what I would want to. Have I mean, that's. I mean, I would rather bury money. <laughs> yeah. Well, the same is true about the smart contracts, right? The whole like fetishization of immutable contract terms. It's like if it's immutable, it's probably going to be understood by your like robot uh, as like it's going to supply the terms that it's going to be favor for you in a way a judge would be able to look at and be like, hey, actually, this person effed you in the way that they uh, um, sort of uh, uh, match these terms or like um, I forget. I don't know the ter contract term, but, you know, mm -hmm. met the contract. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Right. I mean, like, again, this is this going back to what David said earlier about how you're being asked to do every step of it. Right. But you know, this so, is so security at whatever that like you're being asked to be like the contract lawyer, you know, make sure that, uh, yeah, exactly. that you're, you're not being screwed in some su subtle way here because you have no recourse. But I do want to make sure because I cut you off, David, you're building up to something really important. You know, you're like just talking about, um, you know, macroeconomically, like why this is just really obviously not desirable well yeah I, for sure 
and just like really quick because it, it it dovetails really nicely with matt what matt was saying about smart contracts too right which is like the other like big you know idea that it gets pumped out it's like oh bitcoins might be bullshit but like smart contracts are great right it's the same problem right where we're putting like the it, you know maybe in the the company to company dynamic right with the smart contract like the stakes might be high but they're limited at least in some parts of the economy right we're basically we're putting huge decisions that we make as a society right and you know frankly like i'm a socialist and what that means to me is like i very much believe in like democracy and like people's power and i want us to have the ultimate power over society uh, and not to just have certain things just cloistered off from our ability to be able to touch or change immutable shit like contracts or, or um or money right um and so it's it's funny like when you hear his his arguments right we can talk about the remittances in a second um but he's talking about frankly he's talking about taxes right when government takes your money without consent right so this is why libertarians love because the idea yeah. that they can hide money from the government but the uh, um the other and, and free capital too right which is like trying to prevent protect yourself from capital controls um but the other thing that they're really fixated on is inflation and this is uh what ben was was noting earlier um, which is like the big like bugbear, the big thing that they they sort of sell is like, well, this is the problem with fiat currencies that it, their inflation can happen, right? Well, one um, at the very towards the end of that conversation, he's talking about what uh, limited currency is going to do to prices, right? It's going to make them extremely volatile, right? To me, that sounds like uh, while it might not technically be inflation and in, you know in the sense of like there being too much money, it being like that kind of insecurity that we're talking about when we're talking about inflation. Um, that, so, so they're but they're really worried. They they talk about inflation, but what they really mean by that is like central bank government policy to deal with not like again in our minds right what we want to do as socialists we would say like central banks ability to maybe deal with like inequities in the economy right but frankly that's not necessarily the case right it's trying to make sure that like it's, it's trying to make sure that the economy functions in a certain way that benefits certain folks right so again these things aren't neutral right uh, when the federal bank sorry when the federal government sorry when the federal reserve uh makes a decision um you know to you know to do one thing or the other they're making a decision about what group that they want to win over another, right? Um, but inflation is something like, for example, like if you are a debtor versus somebody who is in debt, right? Yeah. If, if you're a debtor versus somebody who is, you know, owns other people's debt, that becomes something that really matters. Why? So if, you know, if you have some debt that's worth $20,000 and then later, um, you know, there's enough inflation that that, uh, you know, $50,000 in real value is like the same as that, you're able to pay that debt down easier than you would be if the opposite were true, right? Where your $20,000 debt essentially became, um, you know, quadrupled in, in real value to you because, uh, you know, there was such a, a variance in like how currency was valued, right? The reason that they get worried about this is that they want to be able to maintain no matter what, um, you know the value that they are hoarding from the rest of society mm -hmm. they do not want there to be any ways that the government can by either tightening or increasing the monetary supply to try to pressure people who have lots of money to do certain things right and that's functionally what it is it's an anti-social belief right it's an anti-democracy belief that you want to be able to subject yourself to your own rules right again it won't ever happen with cryptocurrency or bitcoin because it's not a real currency but the promise 
is also insane and 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 bullshit and should be something that you would want to oppose. Yeah, the 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 fan so the fantasy won't happen because it's not actually particularly in the interests of uh the the people at the top of the economic hierarchy to have you know if this really were in widespread use as a currency this incredibly volatile you know currency that's really expensive and you know power consuming to use and all that stuff so that's why it wouldn't happen mm -hmm. uh but the fantasy is the anti-democratic fantasy i mean it's yes. it's the uh yeah. hey what's you know, if, if you're, you know, I mean, if you're a business owner, you're, you know, whatever, it's like, okay, what's the one aspect of all this I don't control really? You know, it's like, oh, well, the money itself that we have to use, if there was some way we could privatize that, right, take even that outside of the control of, of government and thus potentially, not right now, obviously existing central banks, mm -hmm. um, you know, very much serve, you know, capitalist interests, but like, uh, but that's 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 contingent. I mean, you know, the future the future is not written. You know, and 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 this is this is something that at least can be a mechanism for uh, for for democratic uh, you know yes. control over over money. And and the point of the people who are pushing this is at the very least it's not under their control. They don't like but it. It'd also be bad for like rich people too, right? Like one thing that we all, I'm sure all three of us know and, and talk about all the time is what's happened during this pandemic with like Federal Reserve policy, right? And central bank policy across the globe, right? It has created incredible value for people at the, at the very, very top, right? But could you imagine if the Federal Reserve's hands were tied? Right. And it weren't able to play <laughs> um, with with money and ways to make sure that the system could function during this huge external shock. Right. This is a like I think that's a way to think about it. Right. Is like, again, we're not like, it's not working in our favor right now, but you want to have a system. Right. That can respond to crisis and can res respond to problems. You know, it might not be the way that we want to right now, but that's like the realm of politics, right? But what they're trying to argue for and what they're trying to push the libertarian fantasy right there of like restricting the ability to mess with the money supply um, is actually foreclosing that as an opportunity right yeah. now, which would be disastrous um, if, right. you know, if we just had this pandemic shock and then the Federal Reserve weren't able to intervene on any level. It sounds like a libertarian reaction to quantitative easing. And like yeah. in, indeed, like Columbia cites uh, Sakamoto or the guy who originates it. Like one of the very first things he said is like complaining about that dynamic, basically. And, it, you know, it reminds me, I want to circle back to how this stuff is mined in the first place. Mm -hmm. And just to think about like the word mine and minor and like the amount of labor and history that that sort of take. But instead, like I remember first hearing about Bitcoin, the utopian promise of this decentralized currency that you can make in your own home right and i realized like well i don't have a computer that can do that so i'm out i'm not involved yeah. in this utopia right like instead i need to make like a capital investment in a graphics card and even at this point now that those aren't powerful enough to really make a dent so you need to buy even specialty stuff so it's these are all like capital investments mm -hmm. that people are using to make these things like the the entire idea that this is in any way decentralized is ludicrous it's just centralizing into like the different type of capitalists basically and it's and it's hyper like and like the actual mining facilities are like geographically centralized primarily where money is cheaper right this is not something that like the at, at this point the process that is entailed in mining is not something that people really can do in their basement yeah. um, it takes very powerful machines and a lot of energy to cool those down so they don't spontaneously combust right yeah 
Yeah. All right. Uh, so I, I think I think the remittance thing. I, I think we largely we largely covered earlier, but you know, but maybe the thing to to emphasize. Uh, is... It'd be nice if it did. I mean, that was the thing with like going into El Salvador. That was frankly like that made me double take. I'm going to take mm -hmm. a look at how does this happen because you know it's a, it's like the thing we're talking about. Like if you can get money out of a casino, do it. I this can't possibly scale up in my opinion because. The, like even the capacity that El Salvador is operating at now is it's like clogged. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you were going to do this for an entire country, it seems to me like the problems with the proof of work energy consumption just scale up indefinitely. And those are still unaddressed. And it's like, well, maybe we'll be able to address those in the future. Well, you don't even have the, the good part happening yet. So yeah. why do we tolerate the bad shit? Like you, you haven't even proved the remittances thing, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, right now, I mean, if you if you have uh, good internet access, etc., uh, there there are uh, there are vastly more efficient and 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 cost effective, right? I mean, I mean, in, in the in the video we watched, the Bitcoin guy was was talking about you don't want this big haircut. Well, like it is cheaper right now to do remittances in in other ways, right? In the traditional so, ways that they're supposed to be better than. Yeah, that uh, and and like most of these things, it's like yeah, like there's, there's no. It, it's it seems like most things that are hypothetical good things that could happen with Bitcoin, um, again, with maybe the exception of you know buying drugs or you know or, or you know a few things like that, you know, like are, are all things that like yeah, you could maybe do that, but like you could also eliminate a couple steps and just do it with money. I mean, like, right. like you know whatever. You know, go back to the Palestinians. You know, whatever. Like, uh, you know, on the other end, right? You know, like the the whole problem with PayPal, you know, discriminating against Palestinians uh, is that well, PayPal is something a lot of people will accept as payment, right? Like, once you've transferred the money in bitcoins, you know, you you have to then get into something else that people will accept. So it's just the same thing, except if you want to go through Bitcoin, you've got to add these extra steps, and the extra steps that you're adding. Are places where you're extremely susceptible to fraud and theft, and you know the just extreme volatility of this asset. Yeah, and and again, you're still trying to transfer Bitcoin over into, you know, in, into an actual currency on, on the end, right? Like people aren't, for the most part, are not going and buying things in Bitcoin. They're transferring, you know, fiat currency into. Bitcoin and then on the other end transferring it back out. So again, it's just like this whole process that is fr frankly unnecessary, extremely um, wasteful um, in, in terms of energy. And then you know on on the other side too, it's like you know again, if this were to be actually implemented by governments, it would be disastrous. Capitalism is a growth system, right? We create value every day. The like the things, the, the value in society, the value in the globe increases constantly. So why you would want to attach <laughs> that growth to a, a system that has a you know specific peg on how much you know currency is going to be available is just ludicrous, um, you know, to me. Again, I'm a social, so I want to break out of the system because I think that the models that we have don't work. But if you want to have any kind of stability in the future, um, you wouldn't want that. But again, like I think. The people who understand it enough, maybe to see what that end world would be like. Again, they wouldn't be living in it. Um, but who, 
I think the idea is that like, well, we would be the ones who own the, you know, own the stuff, right? Which is no different um, from how most capitalists think. And that's the thing about Bitcoin and why it's so fascinating to me is that every old scam, right? Every like old thing, like all the things that we've created regulations around um, have been sort of just recreated in a new version um, with, with Bitcoin. I mean, and even when you expand past Bitcoin, like look at Tether right now. Uh, which for people who are unfamiliar is what they call stable coin, right? Which is supposed to be like tied um, to actual currency, um, you know, and that's where it derives its value and it's supposedly more and more secure. Well, the government is now investigating Tether because they, there are some very serious questions about whether or not it actually owns like the close, I believe, like $70 billion or whatever it is that it says um, that it has in, in value, right? And in, in that way, it's functioning like a bank, right? Um, without any of the oversight that right. banks have, um, which is which is a huge problem. And, and, and frankly, like what so much of the, the crypto world and, and, and Bitcoin in particular, but a lot of these other organizations have been has been we have a technology right now that's confusing for a lot of folks. It creates a lot of opportunities to do the same shit that was done 100 years ago that was made illegal. Right. Like, the, like um, you know, essentially like Matt and I couldn't open up our own bank with people and just say, like, give us your money, guys. You know, you know, we have a, we have a bank system going because we would, we, we, you know, we would get uh, we can do a lot of shit. Um, but because these things have moved fairly quickly, I think that is fair to say these things have moved fairly quickly. You know, regulation has not been able to keep up with them. The people can basically do the old scams that were done at the beginning of the 20th century again. Um, and I think more and more we're going to see those things coming down and being yeah. exposed as such. Yeah. I mean, well, also, I mean, I, I think oftentimes like the different technology is is used as an excuse to, uh, you know, to to let things slide out of old regulation. You know, that yeah. uh, this, the same way that, you know, like what Uber, you know, like what Uber does is not new. Right. I mean, that's 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 the uh, that's the employment model. Lots of people were essentially on in the late 19th century. <laughs> so that's very true too. Or it's like Amazon doing company towns. I mean, I think you can make a larger point that this is a great example of how so much technology has been implemented to like recreate old dynamics. Of capital. Yeah, and, and you know, but then it's like, oh well, see, this are new problems from new technology. Nothing we can do. You know, it's like, well, you can, right? I mean, yeah. if you can. If you can legally stop, you know, people from opening, you know, the Bank of Matt and David, you know, without like, you know, the FDIC insurance and all that stuff, uh, then you could then you could also do the same thing, you know, uh, for you know for the equivalent here, you know, you could stop, you know, you could stop Uber, you know, from uh, from doing casual employment, you know, you you've you've chosen not to, you know, I think I think is the takeaway here. All right, guys, uh, this was tons of fun. Uh, we. Um, we will, um, and I know there are people out there who are thinking, "Oh, but like you didn't, you didn't talk about, you know, the the other uses of this, like you know, blockchain technology to do this or that or the other thing." Uh, can, can I just say very briefly yeah. on that, like, because I know yeah. we can't do everything, but I've read a lot of the left pro Bitcoin stuff, right, and I. People, because people are asking us to engage with it. I have not read any piece so far that has done anything other than say, like as you were saying earlier, like here's a potentially socially beneficial activity, or here's a potentially radical activity, and just for some reason, just slotting crypto on top of it. 
mm. be it blockchain yeah, right. or, or, or or Bitcoin, right? So it's like, oh, well, we could fund strikes with it, right? It's like, okay, well, you know, what matters here is like the social, like we were talking about this earlier. It's like, what matters here is the social dynamics. Oh, we could use it to allocate housing. Again, what matters here is like, do we, do socialists and people own the fucking stock of housing? I, I've just, I've not read anything that presents it to me in a way that seems um, yeah, you know, you, radical you, other than you, just you, sort of like sticking it on top of, you know, a hypothetical. No, you, yeah. I mean, you could get together and have like a mutual aid housing cooperative, but like putting a bunch of like, you know, crypto infrastructure on top of that doesn't yeah. actually add anything. Yeah. You, you could have like a bunch of like little online micro businesses that donated a certain percentage of their proceeds, you know, to, to housing or, you know, strike funds or whatever beneficial purpose you could come up with. You could have something where like, you know, anytime like you did anything with any of them, you know, that like you'd have some system set up so that it automatically diverted a little bit to those things. And I'm not saying don't do any of that stuff. Sure, go for it. But no, like, do it. Well, I do, well, do, I do, do know, but do, I don't want do, to put do all it, of our stuff into something that's immutable. I don't want to put it into something that's decentralized, right? Yeah, you're not you're not doing anything like you're not you're not like there's not like adding the extra steps yes. of crypto does nothing but make it very much more likely that uh, your strike fund money is going to get stolen or defrauded, you know, before it makes it to the strikers. So, uh, so I would recommend like just, you know, using money for that if you're going to do it. Rob but, Banks, man, it's cooler. And that's the socialist way. Or know, trains, right? Just like if it, if it can do this stuff, do it. What do you need fucking podcasters to like encourage you for it? If you, if you and your crypto leftists can do something like this, Prove us wrong. I'd love to see a strike floated by crypto, like somehow, right? I'd love it. But let's see a model like that um, is proven rather than like talking about a theoretical benefit of something that is cooking the fucking planet. Like, I think that that's that doesn't seem like too much to ask to me. Yeah, no, that's that's very fair. All right, guys, uh, this is tons of fun. Uh, we need to do it again soon. Yeah, for sure. Yep. All right. See you guys. See you. Talk to you later. All right. Uh, we are going to, uh, we are running a little bit late, but uh, we are going to, before we go to the post game, we're going to bring uh, Jen on for the last segment. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, it is time uh, for our uh, philosophy segment, the end of the show, which last week, this week, and next week uh, has a special name. We now have a banner for this. Uh, teaching Charlie <laughs> Kirk. Somebody's got to. If not us, then who? Exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. so, uh, so because Professor Jennifer Burgess here is uh, one of the only uh, people who has seen this uh, debate. Uh, I am special, just like my mother always told me. Uh, Hi, Mom. So, um, you know, since... Uh, yeah, just one of like four like non-turning point USA people uh, and, um, who uh, who was uh, was in the studio for that. Everybody else could see it uh, two weeks from uh, from tonight uh, after they've run it on the twenty first. Uh, we are going to run it here as part of the episode on the twenty fifth, so that's in two weeks. But we thought we'd preview a few, you know, use these philosophy segments to preview a few of the philosophical things that were talked about that he in, got wrong in the debate <laughs> uh, and take the opportunity to educate uh charlie kirk a little bit about some of these topics that's what i'm here for so to educate about philosophy 
so, my whole life, really. So uh, one of the things that has come up in a number of, of debates since leading up to the one that I did, I watched a few of Charlie's old debates with, with Vosh and Kyle Kalinske and uh, Hassan Piker and Sam Cedar. And what something that came up at least two or three of those uh, and was brought up again in the one that I did is social contract theory. So something that uh, Charlie tends to say when somebody uses the phrase social contract in his presence is there is no social contract. I didn't sign a social contract. Wait, he didn't sign it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how we missed him. Or was he that day? So, it's like when God handed out the, you know, this, that, and the other thing. Where, where were you the day? Where were you the day we all signed the contract? Exactly. So does this mean we can do whatever we want to him? Ooh. Since he's not. Yeah, he is not a signatory to the social contract, so I guess none of us have obligations to him. Uh, so is that so? Uh, so Jed. Does, yes. does Charlie correctly understand what people mean by social contracts? Clearly not. <laughs> he thinks that we actually had to sign a contract. So uh, Jen uh, wrote her dissertation about contractualism. I did. Uh, so she she literally has a, uh, a PhD in this. So let's uh, so so <laughs> let, so let's hear it. Like what? I have a PhD in the social contract. Yeah. Well, the uh, the dissertation was, you know, it was about contractualism. So what's, um, so social contract theory. Uh, is an implicit agreement ooh, that implicit. we all have uh, to keep us That's out it. of the state of nature. What is it? Nasty, brutal, short. Brutish. Something. Yeah, nasty, brutish, and short uh, is what is what Hobbes. No, there were five things in there, and I can never remember that phrase. But whatever. Okay, well, I think that's... I'm sure somebody could give it to us. But I, I it think... was a bad deal, you know. It's it's an unpleasant state of being, is uh, in the state of nature. So because everyone is out to kill everybody else, because there's a uh, there's only so much resources to go around. And everybody's out to get for themselves and everybody is roughly equal because even though I cannot take down Ben by myself, I could join up with a few other people and we could all take down Ben. And now the problem to is that honest, those people, are trying, to that many people. To, are trying to take down me and I'm trying to take down them and there's no loyalty and it's just every person for themselves. So in order to get out of that unpleasant situation, I make a contract implicitly. I make this contract. I don't kill you. You don't kill me. I don't take your stuff. You don't take my stuff. And that way we can all live together in harmony. That sounds good to me. Uh... And then we contract with a government of some sort who we give the, uh, the power to punish us should we break the social contract. Yeah, so you know, but we can still revolt against that government. That's an important part to uh, to add. Yeah, so so if you're if you're Hobbes, then maybe not. You know, maybe the the government you get is 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 it. Uh, but certainly, if you're if no, you're, even Hobbes said that. Okay, even Hobbes that says if you that had an unjust yeah. government, yeah, that it was within your rights to uh, to overthrow it. Okay, and certainly Locke says that. Um, 
And in fact, Locke writing about the social contract is is what you know Thomas Jefferson, you know, was was kind of referring to, and you know, the Declaration of Independence, you know, about you know conditions under which. Uh, you know, it's 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 okay. Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. All right, very good. Uh, <laughs> that is the state of nature. <laughs> Solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, yes. Much uh, much funnier if you imagined uh, the uh, stuffed tiger from Calvin and Hobbes saying that. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> we don't have the rights to him, though. Yes, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So. The, uh, you know, there are a bunch of different versions of, of this idea. In none of them, crucially, is it the case that, like, you personally actually have to, like, explicitly, consciously, you know, be a, a signatory to, uh, to the social... Do people even write back in the state of nature when life was solitary, poor, brutish, and short? Well, probably not, because it was you know because they were they were too busy killing each other, killing each other to <laughs> for for the elk <laughs> to learn how to write. I don't know. Yeah, the elk. <laughs> the elk. All right, all right. It's a good food source. <laughs> Could use the horns for the antlers for what? <laughs> I yeah. I like it. Uh <laughs> So, I'm missing the Dodgers for this. I just want y'all to know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the um, so there are versions of, of social contract theory or sort of social contract derived ethics that uh, that are at least closer to to what he seems to have in mind. Not that close, but uh, but but closer. You know that they that like. It's uh, it's about you know what's sort of individually in your interest, uh, which would would help to you know which you say oh you know I didn't sign it maybe that could be a sort of way of saying that you don't think it's in your interest to to do it maybe that's way too generous. Um, then you just leave society. <laughs> no, but really, that's your if if you that that's an option that you have. Yeah, I mean, good to, good uh, good luck with society. that. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think there are there are very few people who manage to uh, to do that entirely. This is why Plato stuck around instead of going into exile because of the social contract. So um, there's somebody there like my mom. Multiple screens happening. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but like the the original kind of Hobbesian idea of the social contract. Uh, it's the idea is that, you know, we all pose some kind of, or at least all the people maybe who are parties to the social contract pose some kind of threat to each other. Um, and uh, this is why, for example, uh, Hobbes doesn't think that the social contract gives us uh, duties to non-human animals, or as he puts it, uh, brute beasts. Uh, brute beasts are not parties to... Uh, Beast. Yeah, surely. Uh, <laughs> look at her; she's terrifying. Uh, so they're not part of the social contract because, you know, they they don't really you know threaten to send everything into chaos. Well, that's interesting because neither do babies. Yeah. So how can we have any more? If if the if the contract just is 
what morality is, which is the idea of the social contract, that is morality, then we have no obligations to babies. We have no obligations to old people who can neither threaten us nor help us. Sorry, mom. <laughs> well, I feel I feel like Franny could still could still do she that. She can still pull a gun on us. She's from Texas. Yeah. She can still Surely, shoot. Surely she's got a few, you know, lying around and you know, under the pillow and whatnot. But uh, See, she's not watching this. She's watching the Dodgers. <laughs> so uh there, there but there are other views that kind of take as the impetus some idea that morality in general, or maybe at least political justice, can be thought of as some kind of giant contract uh, that, that we're all in. And, you know, one version of that is thinking that it's like, uh, you know, once you, you know, I don't know, you, you click, you know, that you use the product, you're implicitly accepting the terms of service, you know, something like that. Uh, but I think the most plausible version probably of a contract derived view and maybe we should just do this as a cliffhanger for uh for next week Ooh, uh, I like cliffhangers. is uh is is john rawls uh who uh who has a view that uh the the correct principles of justice uh are the ones that uh <laughs> adam uh that you would uh <laughs> that you would agree to, not that you have implicitly agreed to just by being part of society, you know, that would be the Hobbes, maybe the Locke thing, but um, but are the, the, the terms of the contract that you would agree to under certain particular hypothetical circumstances that are relevant to thinking about, okay, what do we mean by justice? Uh, what, what is it that makes an institution just or unjust? And is there a way that we can think about this in terms of contracts that you would sign uh, under particular circumstances? And this came up in, uh, in the debate. Uh, it I, sure did. I, I trotted out uh, John Rawls's idea, uh, which, uh, which the, uh, you know, again, we'll explain it next week, but, uh, but the, you know, That's why it's a cliffhanger. So the uh, the the veil of ignorance, uh, and Charlie had a really interesting response. Uh, All his responses were interesting, if you ask me. Like both. <laughs> why not both? Yes, uh, covered that covered that covered that never, last week. His, I'll never get over his that. answer to uh, the youth for a dilemma was was both. Uh, so he had a similarly interesting response to Rawls's veil of ignorance uh, when that came up in the philosophy part in, in the, the the second section of the debate, the sort of post-game-ish section of the debate. Uh, I'm told that when we get the video, it'll be the whole thing included that. So uh, you get to see that, but we will also preview it next week. Uh, full debate uh, is going to air on this show two weeks from today. But next week for uh, the Teaching Charlie Kirk segment, uh, we are going to talk about what he said about Rawls and the Veil of Ignorance and which makes us scratch our heads. Why it, why it is that it makes us scratch our heads and why we're pretty sure a big Rawls scratches head. <laughs> uh, so we're going to cover that next week. Meanwhile, uh, the patrons uh, should already have the link to tonight's post game. Uh, we're going to have Jason Miles on there uh, talk about uh, some of the odder pronouncements of friend of show, Ron Dreher. Uh, so uh, lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, Megan Day is going to be on the show next week. 
Uh, but right now we and, and Ben. Yeah. And ben. all of those other people, but Ben is that, the number one attraction. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so uh but yeah, big a day next week, but right now, post-game with Jason Biles. So uh, we're going to sign off here and go to the post-game. Team Snoopy forever. Left is best. <laughs>